You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. Critically endangered, the Great Hammerhead, which I'm going to focus on a lot today because it's the largest and it's just amazing. What can they teach us? But my question was, obviously, when, especially when we talk evolution, that head, I mean, that's what the whole podcast is about, is that head. Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. And I'm Angie. Hammerhead sharks, Angie. I'm excited to finally talk about this species. Well, I know, and it's Shark Week, so it's a perfect time to be talking about sharks. And honestly, I uh, am I'm really amped about this as well. It's uh, a cool species with amazing physiology, and the that hammerhead is. I mean, it's iconic. Everybody mm-hmm. know. I mean, we'll describe them in a little bit more detail and what they look like, but everybody can picture a hammerhead and their eyes off to the side. And of course, it leads me to a thousand questions of mm-hmm. why is their head shaped that way? And, I know, I know. And I learned so much. There's so there's several species of hammerheads, so mm-hmm. we'll go through that. Uh, and what really motivated me to bring this to everyone listening this week is that. All nine species of hammerheads, and we'll talk about each, like I said, but they're either endangered or vulnerable. I mean, critically endangered, the great hammerhead, which I'm going to focus on a lot today because it's the largest and it's just amazing. And there's still a lot we don't know about it, but right. uh, an article just came out this month talking about great hammerhead nurseries being near Florida potentially. So I want to touch on that. But it just really opened my eyes to what is going on with shark conservation and what's going on in our oceans. And we'll talk a lot about that today. Absolutely. I mean, whenever you think of the ocean and you think of sharks, you know, great white hammerhead, tiger, bull are probably the four big that most people would think of right away. So they're very iconic. They're they are in trouble. They're in deep trouble. You know, reading a lot about the great hammerhead and other hammerhead species this week. So yeah, it's going to be a great podcast. And then we have a great interview this week, right? Yes. Um, I talked to a shark expert, uh, Dr. David Schiffman. And it was such an awesome interview because David's an interdisciplinary marine conservation biologist, and he's been researching sharks for years. And particularly, he worked a lot with hammerheads. But what what really drove me to reach out to David is that he um, is very well known on social media, and he has a site called Why Sharks Matter both on Twitter and on Facebook and Instagram. And he just is really into educating people about the truth about sharks, about their conservation, about their biology, biology, about shark statistics. Like they don't attack people that often. And Chris and I will talk about that. I mean, you're more likely to get killed by a cow or as David put in the interview, having, I think something like uh, a potted plant is yes. more likely to kill you. A potted or, plant, right? Or a vending machine. Yes. Or a vending machine. Yes. So <laughs> he was just so brilliant to talk to because he really knows his stuff and he is a great educator. So when that 
interview drops in a couple days, please listen to it because it's all things shark this week. It is uh, shark week. And uh, I've been watching, of course, uh, Discovery Channel and Nat Geo's uh, documentaries um, and programming about sharks this week. Most of them are really good. However, there, of course, are some that are a little exaggerated and a little, what is it, like scare factor. Uh, So uh, a lot of shark experts will agree that they need to work on that. However, you can't deny that it does draw people in that maybe wouldn't necessarily care about sharks or wouldn't learn about them without this programming. So hopefully people are drawn in by sharks and then Chris and I can give you more of the actual facts (laughs) behind their physiology and of course uh, some of the statistics out there uh, because sharks should be way more scared of us than we are of them. Absolutely. I mean, it's, you know... We've done many episodes on on sharks and, and shark attacks. I, I'll just address it here it, because, you know, I think those channels do that just to draw viewers in, but it would be nice if they educated them. I mean, you're, it's less than 10 people a year around the world are killed by sharks. It, last year seems to be one of a, the worst years where it was like 10, 11, but normally it's like six, seven people around the world out of the, the hundreds of millions that are that are out swimming in the water. In fact, I was saving the statistic for later, but with with hammerheads, there's only been 16 reported attacks on humans by hammerheads, no deaths. So it's extremely rare. It's extremely rare. And people like David are out there, you know, spreading the truth and information. So listen to that interview. It's really great. And I just want to give a big thanks to Chantel over there in, in Australia. She upped her uh, her Patreon pledge this week. Thanks, Chantel. Definitely saw that. Uh, you know, one Starbucks a month, you support us, you support conservation. And of course, at the end of this month, we'll be taking a poll on who to support out there in the oceans. And, and we send money off to them. But thank you so much. It, it just motivates me and Angie each week. You know, the the hours that go into making each podcast episode, you know, scheduling these interviews, contacting these experts, coming up with the questions, editing all of it, website, everything. Thank you so much. Yes. Thank you, everyone. And of course, uh, if money is tight, you can always drop us a five-star ratings on iTunes, give us a shout out, tell us why you love us so much, or send us an email, or you can join us on our Facebook group, All Creatures Podcast group. And it's not too late. It's Early to mid-July, you could still join us for our plastic-free eco-challenge that uh, All Creatures Podcast is hosting this month. In this challenge, uh, we set little small goals, picking up litter, watching documentaries about the environment, uh, understanding more about the ocean, trying to swap out plastic snacks to like fresh fruits, just really fun, simple challenges that we can do together as a team and just be in a community of people that want to learn more about how to reduce and reuse uh, and consume less plastic. And so it's been really fun so far this month. And we have several people participating from lots of different countries. And if you are interested in joining us, you can just go to plasticfree.ecochallenge.org. Join. Uh, It's free, of course. You just give me your email and then search for All Creatures Podcast. We'll be waiting there for you, and it's been a lot of fun, and our our team has already had a huge impact. Out of like 300 plus 360 teams, right now, the points that we've earned by doing these little fun micro challenges, our team is ranking in the top, within the top 30 teams. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. exactly, because yeah, we all work together, an and it's, it's really fun. 
Absolutely, Angie. And so describing the hammerhead, I mean, I think you know people in their mind or the great hammerhead, because again, that's the one we focused on. It, it's just, it's, it's a beautiful fish. It's a beautiful fish, even though that, that obscure head. Well, yeah, Chris, some people just got describe their head as cartoonish, but it does look like a hammer. And depending on the species, there is diversity within the hammer shape of the head. Some have a more scalloped head. Some have more of a prominent T shaped, like the great hammerhead. And the great hammerhead is also known for this prominent notch or almost indentation in the middle of the hammerhead. And some are extremely long, uh, very long hammer and almost curved angled towards their body a little bit as in the winged shark. So there's just a little something for <laughs> for everybody as far as, their, as far as the shapes and the sizes of the hammerhead. But what's similar in all the species, of course, is that their eyes are set at the far end of the hammer on the left and the right side. And we're going to talk a lot today about their vision and how this potentially helps them as predators. But if you're looking at a hammerhead shark from their uh, side profile, it, it you really see that eye from the corner of the hammer and then, of course, their streamlined body. And as far as the rest of their body, it's very st- sharks are very streamlined and they're going to look like what you would think most sharks look like. Uh, Similar pectoral fins, tail fins. And of course, they have the infamous dorsal fin that will come out of the water. And the hammerheads, their coloring is going to be anywhere from a gray to a brownish, almost green, maybe like an olive color, uh, over most of their body with their underside, their bellies, if you will, being white. And this is, of course, that counter shading that we talked about last week when we were discussing bottlenose dolphins. Very similar. So they're darker on top and then lighter on the bottom, which helps them camouflage as they're hunting and moving around the oceans. They're just such an iconic shark. I mean, you look at them and that eye on the side of the hammer is just it's well, yeah. so bizarre and unique. Yeah. It is, it is. And then uh, they do have a somewhat smaller mouth than other species of sharks. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that almost, once again, looks makes them look cartoonish or yeah, yeah, uh, like yeah. silly. Uh, but it also is probably one of the reasons why humans, if they are accidentally bit, which has happened a few times here and there, uh, people don't die from it. Yeah, uh, it's rare. It's ultra rare with them. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really rare. And a lot of times, you know, you when you do read these studies and, and statistics, you know, a, a lot of times people are attacked is like the shark was hooked somehow on a fishing line and they're right. reeling it in Good and point. it bites mm-hmm. them and that gets reported. So, you know, hammerheads definitely are, are, are not looking to bite people at all. Now the great hammerhead is the largest of all the hammerhead species. So just this one can reach a maximum of 20 feet or six over six meters. So that's I know. massive. That's a yeah. massive shark. Uh, yeah. yeah, definitely. And then and then weighs almost a thousand pounds or four hundred and fifty kilograms. I mean, it's it's a big, big shark. And then when looking at range, Angie, you, you know the the great hammerhead is found, you know, in the seas worldwide. More tropical. They do migrate towards the poles when those seas warm up away from the equator, but they're not going into the cooler waters. You know, they're just going to where it's not quite as hot, mostly coastal. So, you know, United States or North America, South America, 
Africa, the, the all the bottom parts of Asia, Australia. They don't migrate as far down south as New Zealand. Now, they do stay coastal, even though they are oceanic going, they typically don't. They like to stay near the reefs and because probably with their hunting, you know, we talk about that. You know, they really like the coral reefs, the lagoons, those those the continental shelf areas. Yeah, yeah. You know, the tropical islands. And they do migrate. So they do know they they do migrate a little bit, you know, off Florida there near you, you know, north of me, the South China Sea. You know, they will they will migrate a little bit. Typically, you know, they're they're found as deep as a meter, so three feet, three, four feet, or up to 80 meters, you know. So what is that? You're talking uh, 250 feet down. So not really deep, you know, more towards no, the surface. But I, yeah, I was reading, though, that they've been fa- found at 300 meters. At that deep, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. they go so- down. They're very versatile. They can go back and forth. And Chris, what's really interesting about their migration is that there's still a lot we don't know. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some researchers think that it might be, they they might do a longer migration than was historically recorded or historically thought. But what keeps researchers up at night because great hammerheads are critically endangered is these migratory routes which they don't exactly know what they all are, will cross international waters. And so sharks that may be protected in one region, if they migrate to another region, they may not have protection there. And so that can make conservation a little bit tricky when we don't know exactly where they're moving or where their nurseries are, where they hang out as pups, and then where they breed, definitely don't know where they breed. Uh, And then we're trying to, to, to save them. So uh, there is a lot of work being done trying to figure this out, but there's still a lot about hammerheads in general, but definitely the mm-hmm. great hammerhead that remain a mystery. Right, right. I mean, that, that's a good segue into to why I care about sharks or the great hammerhead. I, we've covered, you know, I guess we, we go back to the special episode we did with Corbett Maxi and Seaspiracy. And we touched upon it a little bit, but, you know, throughout our podcast history, researching why sharks are so important, why they need to be protected. There's so much that goes into this, right? Yes, Chris. There definitely is no one quick fix. It's not just if we make this one law, everything will be okay. Uh, Research does show that we will need policies to back up uh, protecting different water areas and working towards sustainable fishing in different parts of the world. Um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely a complex issue. However, what we definitely know is sharks are apex predators and therefore they play a very critical role in keeping oceans healthy. Well, as, as these apex predators, it's just like on land, but you know, in the seas, they pick off injured fish or injured sea life. They sick or infirmed sea life get, get picked off you know, ones that aren't as healthy or robust. So those, you know, always talking about evolution and the importance of predation, by keeping these sick or less robust or less healthy, let's just use fish as an example, because they do it with, you know, say octopus or any other, you know, type of sea life that they, that not, not these sharks per se, but other ocean predators, they don't pass on those genetics. So only the ones that are the healthiest, the strongest, they pass on their genetics more often 
So overall, populations stay healthy. Sure. And of course, they eat, let's say they eat big fish, medium to big fish. Well, those medium to big fish eat small fish. And if there's nobody to eat the medium or big fish, there's an overabundance, and then they'll eat all the small fish. And so it really is about checks and balances. And sharks have been swimming in the oceans for millennia. I mean, just for a long, long time. And they are like these swimming prehistoric creatures. Mm-hmm. When, and they because they've evolved to be so good at their job at being an apex predator. And different sharks, such as the hammerheads, have evolved this really amazing <laughs> shaped head yeah. for a reason. And I think it's our job as humans, if we are going to take over all the all the land and the air and the waterways that we do we do protect them and help keep them around because they have a role. We know they have a critical role and we don't want to find out what would happen to the ecosystem without sharks in it. No, I mean, you make great points. And, you know, the one point you made is if, if where's the, the, the top predators not eating the, that medium level. So the medium level population booms and reduces the small level of fish or sea life. So like with the hammerhead or the great hammerhead, we're going to talk about, you know, they, they eat a lot of uh, stingrays and, and rays. They keep them in check. And sharks are, are ultra critical to the ocean health. And that's why D- Dr. Schiffman and others are talking about like, oh, my God, we need to save these animals because we know sharks and shark populations are decreasing rapidly. And, oh, at an alarming rate, Chris. Yeah. yeah. And in, you know, I always hate going back to sea spiracy because, again, the more we talk about it, the more holes we punch in it in, in that documentary and, and the data they put out. And it, it's a shame. But, hey, at least it brought it to the conversation. So that's kind of the point I was making with that documentary. Talk about overfishing and overexploitation of the ocean. One thing they brought up in that documentary was shark finning. And so this is the rabbit hole I went down to to really kind of figure out what's going on and why shark finning is going on and, and what impacts it's making on shark populations. Right now, the statistic is 100 million sharks a year are killed. A lot of those are attributed to finning. Upwards of 70 million of those sharks are, are killed for their fins. We're going to talk about how the shark fin trade has been changing, but still, the number, 100 million sharks killed per year. 100 million. Yeah. It's unsustainable. It is absolutely unsustainable right now in most areas of the world. Now, it's thought that tens of millions more are are killed by illegal fishing that we never know, you know, Mm, because mm -hmm. people, a lot of people, millions of billions, I forgot what it was, depend on seafood. Of course. To to survive. So they're out there catching sharks, fish, whatever they can to eat. So it's not just commercial fishing or bycatch, which is a huge problem. It's targeted fishing. Sharks are, it's sad. It's really sad, especially with the great hammerhead. They are being fished to extinction. Okay. So that, that's one thing Seaspiracy brings up that, that, that is good that, Hey, the oceans are being exploited. So it puts a big spotlight on these industries. Now, out of the roughly 500 shark species, 181 by the IUCN are heading towards extinction now. So critically endangered, endangered, threatened, vulnerable. 
they're all on a trajectory, you know, almost what 25% roughly or over 25% of the sharks are heading towards extinction. See, this is this is what I feel like Shark Week needs to cover a little bit more of. Mm-hmm. Not when Jaws attacks or something, you know. Why? Well, right. I mean, how high um, a great white can jump in, yeah. off the coast of South Africa is fascinating, mm-hmm. and I will watch it. But I also think it's important that people do understand that sharks across the globe are in crisis. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Now, shark finning, it, it, it's for shark fin soup. You probably know that if you're listening to this podcast. But again, this is a luxury item in, in Asian cuisine. What we know about shark fins, it's cartilage. It is tasteless. It has no nutritional value. It is just usually shredded and it adds texture to a soup. The flavoring comes from the broth and other things added to the soup. The shark fin itself has no value to humans. Now, there's claims, again, like a lot of things, it has medicinal properties for the whole list of like cancer treatments. And you can just imagine some of the things they claim for it, you know, with health. Again, there's zero science that cartilage, which is we can get from any animal, has any medicinal value whatsoever. What is also concerning about shark fins is it contains high levels of mercury. We know this. We talked about it in pilot whales. A lot of our seafood now have have mercury poisoning to a level in there. So they're finding that in a lot of these shark fins, they actually have high levels of mercury. And then if you did watch Seaspiracy and they go through that market in Hong Kong and you see all these shark fins... They're all white because they use hydrogen peroxide to dye them white. So it's more appealing to, to the someone buying yeah. it. So you're eating that too when you put it in the soup. So it's, it, it's, it's maddening that t- sharks would be targeted you know, for their fins. So what is shark finning? Really what, it, what, what the practice is and why it's such an issue is sharks are caught, all of their fins are cut off, and then they just throw the animal in the, back in the water where it, it slowly drowns, it can't move, it can't swim, it's horrific, it's, it's absolutely cruel. They don't take the shark on board because the meat isn't as valuable, and it takes up space. So they can go out there and kill way more sharks and get their fins that are very valuable because this is a multi-billion dollar US billion dollar industry. Now the demand of shark finning has helped to make this industry boom. And really started I think in the 70s and 80s as China got more wealth as they've developed more of a middle class, this luxury item demand for it went up. And so the demand went spiking in the the 80s and the 90s, and then into the early 2000s is really where it peaked. Now, half of the trade today goes through China and Hong Kong of, of shark fins. But demand for shark fins is going down in China and parts of you know Hong Kong and other areas. Because of the Chinese government has oh, stepped in. Oh, that's good news. Yeah, through information campaigns. 
So they've actually driven demand down. So now in China, it's it's less fashionable to eat shark fin soup, and they have concerns with mercury. It's it's poisoning. You know, it's it's poisonous. Mm-hmm. Well, and uh, good news here from the U.S. as well is uh, shark finning the, that the act of shark finning has been banned in the U.S. for years. Uh, however, sh- the trade of shark fin in the U.S. has still been allowed, mm-hmm. and so. Just a few days ago, there was a bill uh, that passed the U.S. Senate, so that's like our first tier of lawmaking, that basically bans the buying and selling of shark fins in the U.S. And since it passed the Senate, this bill will be introduced to the House to hopefully be then made into law. And so it's really, really hopeful. And I think it actually is looking pretty positive. Um, And through the House of Representatives, a lot of people are on board. But of course, there's always more you can do if you are in the U.S. You can contact the House of Representatives and say, hey, please pass this bill. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because, yeah, we don't fend them here in the United States. But if we're allowing the buying and selling of the fins, then that's just helping the market, right? And experts also say that this would help showcase the stance that the United States doesn't doesn't want to tolerate it anymore. So it also send a message to other countries, uh, hopefully. Well, so, it's, it's banned in a lot of countries. It, it, right. It's the act of so what the laws are doing, and a lot, but and, and a lot of the shark fins are actually passed through American ports from South America. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So a lot of that traffic comes through here. Miami, New York. Yeah. L.A. Mm-hmm. So. What they're banning in 12 states, individual states in the U.S. have banned it so far, but you can still find them in markets. What it is, is you can't go out and catch sharks, cut their fins off and throw the shark back in the water. Right. What a lot of the laws in in New Zealand, I looked it up, Canada, India, Brazil, the U.K., many other countries, is you have to bring the shark whole to shore. Then you can cut the fins off and sell them. So, you know, part of using the whole animal for, for market, you know, if, if you're commercial fishing, you bring in a shark, you can sell their meat, but you know what I mean? Like you use the whole animal, so you can sure. sell the fins that Which way. Which is better than just the alternative. Exactly. Exactly. Of just catching a shark, cutting their fins off and throwing the body and keeping the fins. So it's very positive news and it's a no brainer, right? I mean, it's like no brainer. Oh, Absolutely a no-brainer, and I am just really hopeful that we can get the word out there. And like you said, if the numbers are going down in China, I think the more people are educated and realize that, hey, this isn't cool. I mean, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we're devastating our oceans and all for something that doesn't even taste good and that isn't healthy, uh, when there's a lot more healthy alternatives out there for people to plant-based different solutions or other yeah. or other fish that are sustainably caught and marketed um, versus this uh, horrific poaching. Yeah. I mean, in your interview with David, it, he talks about it's an issue. It's still an issue, but more overfishing is really driving sharks populations or sharks to extinction, right? Like it's, it's overfishing is the problem because, and Angie's going to talk about this, they call it the Achilles heel. The Achilles heel of sharks and even rays is their slow reproductive rates. That's what exactly. that's what hurts yeah. them. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's because they reproduce so slowly, unlike other fish. So as you take out a hundred million, 
sharks are, don't have the ability. Most sharks don't have the ability to replace those numbers. So that's kind of what's going on with the shark finning. Demand is going down. There are parts of Asia, especially like the Philippines and other countries that shark finning is still taking place in massive numbers. And it, you know, keep our eyes on it, but it, in a species coming up, we're going to touch more upon overfishing and give you some of the statistics, you know, where the problems are and then what is sustainable fishing? Is it sustainable? And see, Spiracy makes the claim it's not to stop eating seafood, which is not going to happen. That's just not realistic. No, no. People are going to eat seafood. You can feel comfortable eating certain types of seafood that are sustainable, we're going to talk about that here in a couple of weeks, but yeah. And Chris and I, of course, really want to promote more research too. That's the thing is a lot of times there's not enough money to really fully do the evidence-based science to understand what is sustainable and what is it and how can we do it better? And I, I'm hopeful that more money would go towards that, learning more about our oceans and how we can help keep them healthy through sustainable fishing. Yep. 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 And you know, Angie, when you were, you mentioned this earlier, these prehistoric animals, sharks have been around for nearly 400 million years. They're one of the more ancient I know. I just, animals just on the planet. Fascinating. They've survived five mass extinctions. They're, they're, they're one of the few species that were able to survive it. You know, the deep diving down there in the bottoms of the ocean fish that, you know, as most species on the planet were wiped out, they, they survived. <laughs> yes. They found ways to survive. They're survivors. And then they, and then they evolved this crazy hammerhead. Yes. Like we cannot lose them on our watch. I mean, no. we just can't. No, no, they're too amazing. Now the, the great hammerhead or, you know, the hammerhead sharks belong to the, the class chondrichthys. Oh my goodness. Sorry to all of our shark experts out there. <laughs> holy smokes that was bad where's dr schiffman when we need him i hope he's not listening chandra chithes i don't even know why i try to pronounce these all right these are the cart cartilaginous fishes there's about a thousand species oh and a quick spoiler alert chris and i are not fish scientists no no we do mammals yes mammals that live on land yeah yeah all right so the order (laughs) i'm just gonna keep going carchahiniforms these are ground sharks, which is easy, and there's about 270 species. Now, what's what's interesting is the eight orders of sharks, the ones that we've covered before are the lamniniforms. So that's the whites, the tigers, and now this one, the carcharniniforms. This is, you know, blue sharks, or actually the tiger sharks part of this one. Uh Blues, bulls, lemons, and then hammerhead sharks. So very complex uh, order of of fish. Now the family for hammerheads is Spirinidae. And again, like Angie said, nine species. The genus is Sphyrna, S-P-H-Y-R-N-A. Within that, there's eight species. So, you know, you have the, the winghead shark, the scalloped, And the wing head, isn't that one though, like off on its own little branch? Yeah, that's its own genus. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So then you have the scalloped bone head. I mean, yeah, they're just, they're all crazy looking heads. Like the great hammerhead, the scalloped hammerhead. They're just, they're beautiful. All, All of them, all of them. They're just beautiful animals. 
And so besides the winghead shark, which is endangered and its population is mm-hmm. decreasing, there are eight others. Uh, there's going to be the smooth hammerhead, which is uh, population is vulnerable. The small-eyed hammerhead, critically endangered. The bonnet head, which is endangered. The great hammerhead, critically endangered. Population decreasing. That's what we're talking about today. The scoop head, critically endangered. The scalloped hammerhead, also critically endangered. And then the Carolina hammerhead, uh, the population's unknown as is yet to be uh, counted or assessed. It's crazy. They're all they're all in deep That's, trouble. That's why, trouble. I mean, this, this podcast is always, every week is such a, my own little micro evolution mm-hmm. as far as emotion, like an emotional roller coaster. First, like, oh, this species is so cool. And then I start learning more and, oh, I can't, I wonder about this. And I wonder if people wonder about this because I wonder about this. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Maybe they're dorky like me. And doing all of that, but then really diving into some of the conservation stuff and and learning this fact that they're all endangered or threatened or vulnerable. Critically endangered. Like Critically endangered. The that means you're almost extinct. Hammerhead. Yeah. It was just really like, so then I kind of go into this like sorrow, like, I, why do I do this podcast? It makes me really sad every week. And what are we doing? But it, it came full circle, I think, this week because the past couple of days, uh, I have been watching Shark Week with my boys mm-hmm. and and trying to get this younger generation excited. Of course, I'm correcting them when they're like, oh, sharks threaten people. And, and yeah, they say yeah. these dramatic things. I'm like, no, they don't. Mosquitoes are more threatening. Cows are more th- the horses <laughs> yeah. that I ride yes. are more way more, way more likely to kill me. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. uh but but I think it it did. I'm like, okay, at least people are caring about sharks. There are a lot of shark researchers out there. Uh, it gives me hope. And I know in this younger generation, there's a lot of people that are and kids that are interested in marine biology, marine mm-hmm. conservation. And I'm going to talk about a really cool group uh, at the end of the podcast that supports minorities in shark research. Yeah, I it give it, and then finding groups like this gives me hope. So I I end up hopeful. Uh, but it is. It is always it, it's, it's tough. Just, it, yeah. it can be, and uh, but there. I think I'm my hope is is for many people that are fearful of sharks and don't care about them. There's ten more that love them and are fascinated by them and are not scared of them. Or or I mean, some of these divers on Shark Weeks. I'm like, well, you baited the water. What did you think would happen? Yeah, I, like, you, I, I mean, know. that's just like. Yeah, I know. And if you're doing, and sometimes they're doing research to do it so that I understand, mm-hmm. like one was, uh, one was, uh, trying to test out a new shark repellent using magnets, uh, whereas like, it was almost like a fence, but it had magnets in it. So and they did and that's, I understand why they bathed the area then to bring in more sharks to see if this actually worked and it did work. So that's mm-hmm. cool. Mm-hmm. But anyways, uh. Okay, I'll get off my soapbox. But, no, uh, it, it, but you know, again, that's why we do the podcast. You know, our Patreon supporters help us do that. It keeps us going. It's just, it, it is, it is unfortunate that a lot of these species are in trouble because you know, again, sharks have one of the the longest natural histories of of any animal species we cover. Yeah. I think the, the only thing that trumps it, I know. I mean, obviously, some bony fishes, but I just go back to jellyfish, which maybe we'll have to cover. You know, one here in the next year, you know, the box jellyfish or something, you know, they've been around for 700 million years. They're one of the earliest life forms that, that is crawling around the planet or floating around the planet. You know, 450 million years ago is when sharks kind of emerged. I mean, way before a dinosaur, like way before. 
I way before dinosaur. I mean, my boys and I read about dinosaurs every night. I'm really getting good at pronouncing the names: Ichthyosaurus, uh, Pachycephalosaurus, uh, all of them. And then to think, okay, but there were sharks swimming around long before mm-hmm. you know, the dinosaurs. Oh yeah, before Just- trees. And you remember, before trees, there were sharks in the ocean. Trees didn't come around until about 380, 385 million years ago. So our oceans were populated with with sea life before trees even made <laughs> an appearance on the planet. So incredible. You know, incredible. Yeah, the golden age for sharks, they, they call it the Carboniferous period, was about 360 million years ago. And they dominated the oceans. Like it was them, top predator, nothing to mess with them. And the modern shark groups that we just talked about came about about 200 million years ago. So their, their ancient ancestors were here 200 million years. You know, that's when dinosaurs were emerging or, or were on the planet. It's, again, shark history is a little difficult. Again, the fossilized teeth, we've talked about this uh, in previous podcasts. It's something Angie does in the creeks and rivers in Florida goes out shark teeth hunting. I mean, those shark teeth are thousands of years old that you find. They're so cool. My boys, I they're they're troopers. 7 mm-hmm. and 4 years old. They'll spend all their time just sifting in the yeah. in the riverbeds of uh, the city we live in, which is in inland Florida in Gainesville. So Yeah. Yeah, because you used rad. to be underwater. <laughs> that, that, exactly. That, and all those sharks. And at the were rate shed, we're going, yeah. we might be again soon. Jeez. Yeah, I know. I know. That's Gosh. a different pod for a different day. <laughs> So that's how we find a lot of these fossils and then able to extrapolate from that, you know, is, is from their, their teeth that are that are saved. Now, what we know about hammerheads first appeared, they estimate around 20 million years ago. But again, not a very detailed history. I mean, we don't even know a lot about their, their current habits and, and ranges and stuff. So finding their evolutionary history has been difficult, which we find with a lot of ocean going species. But my question was, obviously, when especially we talk evolution, that head, I mean, that's what the whole podcast is about, is that head. Why did they develop? My my slide is titled, The Hammer. Why? 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 (laughs) Why? We're we're scientists. We always ask why, why, why? Well, I think it's important to note that, scientifically speaking, the head is called the cephalofoil which mm-hmm. means head wing. Mm-hmm. So yeah. there was some talk about the head being like a wing that helps give the shark lift. That was an interesting study. It, it was. Mm-hmm. It was. And, and I guess we could start there. I mean, there's, there, are, there are a lot of, obviously, evolutionary benefits. You know, why would they develop it? And, and I think the, the, the first thing is it does give them better eyesight. That's yes, it's there's mm-hmm, better there's binocular def- vision. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, there's three main, I think, hypotheses or theories mm-hmm. that one is sensory reception, their vision and depth perception, and then the second one is maneuvering, quick turns or lift, uh, and then the third one is prey manipulation. So right. we can break right. down each one of those. Uh, and yeah, if we start with them being able to see or sensory reception. I thought that was a really cool study. Yeah. Because I mean, you, those eyes are at the end of that hammer, right? And Mm -hmm. and I guess it's hard for us is sometimes when you think about even 
hoofstock, you know, where the eyes are at the side of the head and they have mostly mm-hmm. monocular vision, you know, per, that's your peripheral vision. You know, if you look off, if you put your hand to the, to the side of your head without looking at it, you can see it, but you can't really focus in on it. That's monocular vision. So with sharks, and we talked about this, I think with great whites and probably tiger sharks, we'll talk about the ampullae of Lorenzini. We've talked a little bit about that before, that that's pretty critical for shark perception. So eyesight is is always kind of seems secondary, I guess, with like sure. great whites and, and tiger sharks. But with hammerheads, because their eyes are at the edge of that hammer, it actually gives them better vision, better binocular vision where they can focus in on prey, fast moving prey like squid and rays. Mm-hmm. And it says they can give them a 360 degree view all around them. Yeah, in a vertical plane. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. They can see above yeah. and below them at, at all times. That's the first species I think we've ever covered that can do that. I can't think of any other species. I can't either. It was definitely a wow factor for me this week. Yeah, yeah. So they, they see all around all the time. Mm-hmm. And so you could imagine over 20 million years, the the hammers being evolved to give them an advantage for their particular niche which mm-hmm. is squid and rays and things where a great white shark, the, you know, they don't need it. They didn't need to evolve something like that because they're going for seals and, and other big fish and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then of course, like other sharks, the great hammerhead and all hammerheads in general have the sensory organs that can detect electrical fields mm-hmm. from their prey in the water. And like Chris mentioned, these electrosensory organs are also called the ampullae of Lorenzini, if we're pronouncing that right, uh, which are like, they're basically like pores and they're in on the head of sharks. And these pores lead to basically tubes with neurons or sensory neurons that can help detect electrical fields of living creatures, fish, mm-hmm. prey, whatever they are, whatever they're eating. And so with these pores and the sensory organs being over their head, well, if your head is much larger, I mean, if you, gosh, if you think of a winged shark, which mm-hmm. has this huge hammer um, or great hammer head, mm-hmm. that there's going to be able to be more of the sensory organs uh, or the ampullae of Lorenzini spread across their head, right? Mm-hmm. They have mm-hmm. more of them than just a streamlined head of a great white, like Chris mentioned. So there are some theories out there that this hammer will increase their ability to hunt prey. It gives them advantage because they can, they've got, they can sense more area around them. So they have this 360 degree vision and then that they can see prey all around them. And then they have potentially more electrosensing organs to feel. I I mean, once again, I think I forget which I think it, well, one, somebody called it like a metal detector, you know, it, it's right. It's just so hard for us humans to, to relate to this. We talk about like a super, a superpower mm-hmm. of being able to sense electric fields. I mean, we've all been shocked on electric horse fence. I know I have yeah. uh, <laughs> a lot. Yes, yes. <laughs> I was slow to learn my lesson yeah, uh, and yeah. I still go back for more. Um, Oh, but or a static electricity, we've all felt that before. But this is to- this is completely different, and, and something that's hard for us to be able to to even recognize or relate to. But whatever it is, it's it's going to be rad. Whatever yeah. it is, it's think gonna be about rad. this too. It's like it's like a heat source, right? 
because right now it's it's really freezing here in New Zealand, and so I have my space heaters. When you're far away, you can barely feel it, but as you walk closer to it, it gets hotter and hotter and hotter and hot, and then it's really hot, right? So you can imagine you have a bunch of those sensory recept sensory receptors that can hone in on an electric source. So it's tough. It's tough to relate to human or mammalian physiology. And with that, Angie, you sent me this amazing study and it's a, a it's so cool. Like the, the 3D modeling, the hydrodynamics assessment of the hammerhead shark, cephalofoil, published just a few months ago. It, it was an amazing yeah, read. Out of, the uni- yeah. mm-hmm, out of the University of Mississippi. Because they were trying to answer the question, you know, like you said, that, that they thought that 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 surface of the head acts like a wing of an airplane. So they thought it actually helped give it lift, which, you know, that's what, uh, which I don't know. This is all engineering, physics, things. I, I'm still amazed airplanes fly. Every time I'm on an airplane, I'm like, wow, you know, <laughs> I can't believe I'm, I'm being propelled through the air. But they thought it, it, it helps maintain lift or, you know, go up or surface. But they kind of found it was a little bit different, right? Yeah, the researchers were able to show that uh, it does give the hammerhead great maneuverability. So they build, like if you think about turning on a dime, uh, hammerheads are known to, to be able to do that much better than a lot of the other species of sharks. So definitely have increased maneuverability. Uh, but in the same instance, the research showed they basically use computer modeling to simulate how the water moves over uh, several different species of hammerheads compared to more uh, the more common shaped snout of a shark, which is like angled or whatever, pointy, if you will, for lack of better terms. And yeah, the, the research showed that it did not provide any more lift in the hammerhead uh, than in the head of other species of sharks. Yeah. It does. It did help like them ascend or descend quickly mm-hmm. if they angled the head, but like swimming straight, it it didn't. Yeah. And then they also said it added a lot more drag compared to those other Which type sharks. Yeah. Makes some sense if you think about it. Uh, I mean, with swimmers, you're always trying. Olympic swimmers, Olympics coming up. When I was swimming, we had to wear just like really tight suits, which were like they would. We would have to get into suits that were like three or four sizes too small for us uh, to like, you know, to reduce drag so that the Mm -hmm. swimsuit would like stick to your body. And then now several years later, I'm dating myself because several years later, now uh, the Olympic swimmers are swimming in almost like full, like short and jumpsuits because they realize that that actually uh, shark, they should call them shark skin suits, I think. May, I'm not I, sure. I think so. But, I don't yeah, know. but but basically <laughs> to like to keep yeah. to keep it all in, right? To yeah. the more you have sticking out, yeah. whether it's skin. I mean, swimmers obviously don't have yeah. any fat, barely any fat on their body, yeah. whether it's muscle or whatever it is. The more it's like tucked in tighter, mm-hmm. uh, it reduces drag. Yeah, so I mean, it's like in milliseconds difference right, in races. Right. Yeah. yeah. Any advantage. You know what? I bet if I would have had one of those suits, I would have qualified for state. Oh, I, bet, I bet that's what the problem was. <laughs> yeah, I'd be watching from the stands, eating eat my nachos. No, but, you know, so it does, you know, provide a lot of drag. So that actually isn't a benefit, you know, because it does burn more energy to swim mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and when they yeah. need to hunt more often. So, you know, it, it's a it's a cost benefit ratio for them. 
Sure, but I just love science because, just like you, Chris, I don't really understand aerodynamics know, or fluid physio fluid physiology or engineering or I don't even know what. Uh, but I could read the diagrams in the paper, and you could really tell that um, there was really no benefit as far as the lift included for some of the, like for some of the modeling that they were doing. Uh, and it was just one of these reasons why you got to love science, and we need more of it. Well, the 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 one interesting thing I did read talking about drag is the great hammerhead will swim on its side mm -hmm. called rolled swimming, mm -hmm. which is used to reduce drag. So they swim more, they expend less energy, which is bizarre. So instead of a, a fin that's parallel to the surface, it's, it's what lateral is that what you're saying? Like, you know, up and down as they right. swim. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I yeah. thought that was, that was interesting. Well, in the majority of sharks, the pectoral fins are going to be a little bit longer than that first dorsal fin. Mm -hmm. But for the hammerhead or the great hammerhead, it's the reverse is true. And so it's going to have a big shift on how these animals move and where they do some of this, what you call sideways swimming. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was really cool. It was really cool. Now, what we, we do know about great hammerheads, they, they can live to be about 45 years old, but it could be longer. Again, when we talk about what they eat, you know, stingrays, shrimp, crustaceans, cephalopods, so like, you know, octopus, squids, things like that. Sometimes other sharks, they could be cannibalistic. It's what was interesting is they find hammerheads with a lot of barbs, barbed stingers in their mouths. So mm -hmm. they think they're. And these are venomous with, with stingrays. We'll have to cover a stingray at some point. But they have found, you know, hammerheads with tons of these barbs in their mouths, even their throats. But it, it didn't bother them. Like, they, they're immune to it. Or they right. think they are. I mean, yeah. right. I mean, more more to study, of course. But it really is fascinating. Uh, when we think of, like, honey badger don't care, right? Honey yeah. badger walking around <laughs> with all the porcupine quills. Yeah. Uh, just really, really fascinating. And it wouldn't be surprising if they had this adaptation to be able to gobble down and deal with uh, toxic critters that mm -hmm. other species stay far away from. I mean, that would be a really cool adaptation. And we were talking about nutrition and, of course, talking about the hammer. Why? Why is it shaped that way? The last hypothesis is that their head may be shaped this way as a benefit to hunting. There have been several observations of great hammerheads penning down stingrays um, on the ocean floor. So using its big old head to push the creature into the sand and then basically bite the prey until it's immobilized. You imagine seeing that in the wild. You, it's used to you, you know, because you're the behaviorist, and yeah. never hearing about that behavior, and then seeing this new behavior. I could just imagine you'd be screaming underwater. Oh my god, look how amazing! Oh my god. Well, I will admit that's, that's so cool. With, with Shark Week, I mean, once again, there's a lot that they can improve on, in my opinion, uh, as far as their conservation message, in toning down on some of the the shock value. But they do have incredible footage, and they work. They do work with a lot of divers and researchers, and they they've been they were showing some new behaviors that I'd never seen before on really rarely observed sharks that researchers just don't know anything about. So yes, I was sitting there with my popcorn, just being like, "This is so cool!" And even my kids were like, "Wow, we're the first people to see this, Mom!" And I'm like, eh, "Kind of," but yes, it is. It <laughs> yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. It is fun. 
Yeah, yeah, it is fun. It, it, they're, they're just uh, animal behavior. It, it, it's such, such a thrill to, to study. Now, great hammerheads generally are not preyed upon by other marine mammals. doesn't mean it doesn't happen. It, it, it can, but generally they're not. Uh, other hammerheads, I'm sure, are preyed upon. I mean, we know orcas will kill sharks every now and then. Maybe other great, you know, a great white, a tiger shark maybe could go after a great hammerhead or a smaller great hammerhead, but generally not you know, one that that's preyed upon quite a bit. Nope. Their biggest enemy is us humans. Yep. I know. I know. That's where the problem. Yeah. So what, I mean, besides the, the penny, which I found fascinating, what are some of the other behaviors of, of hammerhead sharks? Well, with the great hammerhead, Chris, there's actually not a ton known about their behavior or even their social systems. But what we do know is that, they typically are solitary hunters, and of course, they're not that dangerous to humans. So a lot of other species of sharks, including some of the hammerhead species, will hang out in groups or in schools during the day. Uh, and then at nighttime, when they're hunting, they'll become solitary. Now, the great hammerhead shark, researchers think, does not do this. So that they'll, they're solitary just most of the time. Well, I always find hammerheads particularly interesting because you see these massive schools of them. Like you don't think of sharks generally as schooling, but you do see it with some species of hammerhead. Well, yeah, you do. And, and as we are studying them more and researchers are doing some of these projects where they might bait them to bring more into the area. Uh, they are learning a lot more about their feeding behavior and this whole like alleged feeding frenzy is, is maybe that they are actually hanging out in these school or these groups during the day, um, either for safety or just part of their natural history. So I, I mean, that's, that's the thing when we look at conservation and wanting to, to save great hammerheads or just all, all species of sharks. There's still a lot we don't know about them and, and them being just like ferocious meat, man hunting, killing machines is not really what they're seeing. Uh, the more we get in the water with them and study them. I know, I know they get such a bad rap. They get such a bad rap. Now, one of the major reasons they're they're heading towards extinction is these slow reproductive rates. They they don't reproduce like other fish, right? Sharks generally don't. No, when we think of a fish, which hopefully we'll cover, which hopefully we'll cover later on in the month, will lay thousands of eggs that get fertilized by external fertilization, and then and then produce a lot of baby fish. Uh, sharks are different, and. For instance, in general, hammerhead sharks, they typically only reproduce once a year. And there really isn't a lot known about courtship behaviors or breeding grounds just because the ocean is so vast and a lot of these species of hammerheads do do some migration and there's just still so much work to be done. So all of you budding marine biologists and conservationists out there, like there, there's a lot that we need to know in order to help protect hammerheads. Uh, but what we do know in general with hammerhead, beha hammerhead behavior is that when a female is an estrus, a male will typically bite her a little bit, uh, basically until she agrees to mate with him. 
So that's not very romantic. It's, uh, <laughs> it's like, yeah. Uh, but to each their own, right? Yeah, and yeah, so, yeah, yeah. I mean, we can't, I mean, why are we laughing? The sharks have been around for millions and millions of years. So this, yeah, this must work for them, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, this courtship. But then once male and female hammerhead do come together, the fertilization is going to be internal, uh, which means the male is going to transfer sperm uh, into the female through his male reproductive organs, which are called claspers, which I've been, I actually, after watching Shark Week a lot, I've been able to, when a male swims by, I can see his claspers and be like, right. ooh, ooh, there's a male. Yeah, that's about as far as my fish biology skills go. Um, but what's really cool about hammerhead sharks is they do what's known as viviparous reproduction. So the Eggs are going to develop internally in the female, and the female is going to give live birth to young. You would just, for a fish, you wouldn't think that. Like, you really wouldn't think that. Right. And we have to keep in mind that they're not a placenta mammal like a dolphin or a whale. Um, But basically, when the eggs have been fertilized, the developing embryo, they have a yolk sac that basically nourishes them. And then once all the yolk has been utilized, the yolk sac area does transform into a structure that's somewhat similar to a mammalian placenta, but not. Um, so it's called a yolk sac placenta or a pseudo pseudo placenta, which uh, through which the the mom shark is going to be able to deliver some sustenance until birth. But once again, I'm not a fish biologist, and so this is super fascinating to me, and mm-hmm. I would have to take a lot more classes to yeah. understand it. Yeah. I took a whole course on the human placenta, right? and uh, that was really just incredible and fascinating, and mm-hmm. I still have a lot to learn. And mm-hmm. Well, there's a lot we don't even understand about the mammalian placenta. So when we talk about a yolk, yolk sac placenta, I'll have to do a deeper dive on that uh, in some years. Yeah, I know, <laughs> this podcast I know, you got to give me some time, but yeah. this is really cool. And so I do. I mean, the, it's so fascinating to me that I know the great whites are similar. They give they basically give what is a live birth, but mm-hmm. it's not to be confused with a mammalian like bottlenose dolphin right, or right. Uh, an orca. Right. But once the baby hammerhead sharks are born. They are not taken care of by the parents in any way, shape, or form. And so, once again, that's going to be very different from the bottlenose dolphin that we just covered who makes milk and nurses her calves for like up to a year. And so, when we talk about the number of hammerhead pups that are born at any given interval, like once a year, uh, the litters are going to be actually large um, compared to other hammerhead. So, the great hammerhead is going to uh, give birth to anywhere from like 20 to 40 pups where your other species of hammerhead sharks are going to, are going to have litters of about 12 to 15 pups. So the great hammerhead does have some more pups than other species of hammerheads, but still when we're talking about once a year, 20 to 40, how many of those pups actually make it to adulthood? I don't think there's any studies to understand, um, those percentages. Um, but it's definitely not a hundred percent, right? No way. No way. No way. When we talk about there being a lot of predators in the, o- yeah, uh, in yeah. the ocean. So, but I couldn't find a picture of a great hammerhead pup, right. but 
they do have um, they do have a hammer when they're born. It's like it's more it's gonna be a little bit more rounded uh, than an adult, but it is still there, which to me is just darling. So now the pups that are born are gonna kind of somewhat stick together in the warmer water in what what is known as um, a juvenile nursery until they're large enough to survive on their own because their safety is in numbers and uh, that whole philosophy is like well. You don't have to be the fastest. You just can't be the slowest, right? Right. (laughs) (laughs) And but what was really really cool is uh, just this this an article just came out like a day or two ago about potential shark nursery for the great Mm -hmm. hammerheads Mm -hmm. just off the coast of Miami, and so a team from the University of Miami called the Miami Shark Project, led by Catherine McDonald. Uh, she also runs a cool program called the Field School, which helps train young marine biologists and conservationists and how to do and how to have some of these technical skills. Her team's been working in this area in the Bay of Biscayne, just off the coast of Miami. I mean, you can see the beautiful skyline in the background when she's on the boat. They've been studying this area for I think like three to five years, and they just came out with a paper that was able to provide really solid evidence of a great hammerhead nursery. Yeah, because they were able to catch and release several juvenile great hammerheads and then a few scalloped hammerheads, which once again are both critically endangered. And so as um, Catherine was pointing out in the interview that I was watching is that if we can identify where these great hammerheads and scaled hammerheads are breeding and producing pups, then we we know which areas of water to try to really conserve and put policy into place to keep to protect these waters. Yeah. Because it's it's unrealistic to say like all the waters everywhere, right. nobody can do anything in them because that's no. just no. not helpful no. to anybody. No. But if these researchers like Catherine McDonald and her team of brilliant scientists can say, hey, we have all this evidence to show that we were, you know, that this is most likely a, a great hammerhead nursery, let's protect this area. Yeah, uh, and let's absolutely. and let's and let's keep it safe. And and that would really help their numbers because the great hammerhead is critically endangered. So kudos to that team. And it's just a really exciting discovery that just recently happened. And that contributes to a longer generational <laughs> interval. So, you know, even though they may have that many pups, how many do survive? Because the younger ones are picked off by other sharks and other other. Well, and then predators. to make it in, into adulthood to actually yeah. be uh, sexually viable to reproduce right. their own offspring, they have to you know, not yeah. not be caught up as a as a byproduct. Bycatch. Well, or... And bycatch is the, one of the top reasons they're they're critically endangered. The great hammerhead, other hammerheads, they're they're highly sought after in the uh, fin trade. Right, because so, they have such a large fin. Yeah, mm-hmm. so they're ooh, they're they're hurting. This one's a tough one. Like it, this isn't. It, there's no feel good stories right now with great hammerheads. Uh, you know, or hammerheads as as a whole, they all are in trouble. And things like I will say, seaspiracy at least brings it to light, even though some of the information in there it, it is wrong, just flat out wrong. But like you said, you have researchers out there identifying these areas. We can protect them. One of the articles you sent me was talking about set setting aside these marine reserves 
that that is helping rehabilitate certain areas. So we need more of those, more of those policed. So, you know, commercial fishermen wouldn't go in there to fish and, um, you know, protect these, these, these species. Now, when it comes to shark, Angie, there's a, a lot of good people doing a lot of good work out there. But w- what's one that you really want to highlight this week? Well, I want to highlight two, uh, plus my interview. <laughs> because yeah, 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 yeah. as you mentioned, there are several groups out there uh, doing great things for sharks. And that was one of the hopeful notes that I was left with this week, is knowing that there are a lot of people that do care about sharks. And and honestly, watching Shark Week does show that as well, uh, because there are many, many advocates on there that want to help showcase sharks um, and learn more about their behavior and learn more about them in general. So first, definitely check out my interview with uh, shark expert, Dr. David Schiffman, about why sharks matter. That'll be dropping in a couple days. Uh, You can also right now go to Facebook or any social media and just type in why sharks matter. And you can start following Dr. David's platform. And trust me, this week, it's been really fun following him because he a is an expert, so sometimes he'll call out Shark Week on stuff, which is really awesome. Uh, but then also, but he is also posting current research that's going on, and that's where I got a, several of these papers that Chris and I reviewed for this podcast. So, just a really informed shark expert that is out there fighting hard for hammerhead sharks, but then of course all sharks and helping educate the public. So, Dr. David Schiffman, number one, number two. Um, I want to talk about a group called MISS, M-I-S-S, which stands for Minorities in Shark Conservation. You can follow them at MISSELASMO.org. So that's M-I-S-S-E-L-A-S-M-O.org. And uh, they have a website, which is wonderful. Um, And of course, they're on social media as well at Minorities in Shark Science. And what this group does is it understands that diversity is extremely important in marine science conservation, um, and it supports women of color in shark science. And so uh, MIS was founded by four black female shark researchers, and they strive to help take up space in a discipline that's been largely inaccessible to minorities and women. And so they want to be positive role models for the next generation. And they, of course, promote diversity and inclusion in shark science and encourage women of all colors to break the glass, baby. And one of my goals just is to get one of the representatives from Miss on the podcast to talk to us about what they're doing because they're a new group and they would really they could really use our support. So definitely, definitely go to social media and give them a shout out. Minorities in Shark Science, give them a follow and uh, and let's support what they're doing to help get uh, more women of color in shark science. I'm just looking at the, I'm I'm looking at their website right now because yeah, I was like, wow, that's really cool. So yeah, it's it, it's amazing. Again. It, so many people, I guess, you know, because I'm, I'm really trying to pull out some feel-good stuff about hammerheads <laughs> because it's such, it, it's tragic. It's really tragic what's going on out in the oceans. But here you go. You have a group out there fighting for sharks and, and other aquatic life. So it, it is a very feel-good story. So the take-home message I'm trying to you know give you is, is groups like this are out there. Well, yeah. I mean, here oceans. you have... Um- Right, exactly. Here you have uh, minorities, women of color, and science, shark science, being mm-hmm. like, we want to be, her- we we want space 
in this science. We deserve to be here. We deserve to be heard. Mm-hmm. Uh, we and and they're and they're they're doing it, and they are doing the research that we need to help protect sharks and to understand more about them. So, absolutely, yeah, absolutely, absolutely critical critical yeah. mission. And then. On the other end of the spectrum, okay, once we get all this data, oh, it looks like there is a, a nursery in the Bay of Biscayne and mm-hmm. um, off the coast of Miami and Florida. Well, now what? So the next group I'd like to promote and talk about is, is known as Shark Advocates International, which can be okay. found at sharkadvocates.org. Um, and this group was founded by Sonia Fordham, and she's another one I would like to talk to uh, here in the near future. But Shark Advocates International is all about safeguarding sharks through sound conservation policy. That P word, the policy, policy, policy. So in order for sharks to survive, they need sound, realistic, evidence-based science to help create policy to protect them. And so Shark Advocates International is a great group that's doing that. And they can be found, of course, um, on social media as well. So sharkadvocates.org, give them a follow. And then also um, Minorities in Shark Science, which is found at misselasmo.org. And we'll have those links on the show notes as always. And, you know, thanks for listening. It, it, it's You're part of the solution it's not only just the education that you get that we share, you know, that we go and learn and then share with you. It's you turning around and sharing it with your friends and family and and others that helps amplify the message. So if you really care about, you know, hammerheads, the great hammerhead, please share this episode, talk to friends, make people aware of what's going on. And, you know, that's really my conservation tip of the week you being an advocate for them, you being a voice for them, that will help them. You know, if you really care about sharks in the oceans. Absolutely. And, you know, tell Discovery and National Geographic and uh, Shark Week groups that, hey, we want more conservation stories in here. We And we want to see more women, um, more minorities that represent marine scientists out there. And, you know, that's we vote with your dollar and and, and you will be heard. Great episode, amazing species, the great hammerhead. We've got a couple more fun ones for the month. Plastic free July. Keep keep working hard on reducing your plastic for our oceans. But thank you so much for listening. Thank you, everyone. Listen, learn, share. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com.